the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to day two of my comeback. After vacation, maybe I'll be a little bit more adept at getting through this program today. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, whatever is going on, we'll do the best that we can. You can call us at area code 210-340-9585. That's 340 or calling toll-free if you're outside the local area, 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. I say every day if you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Not a whole lot going on today, so we can get right to some questions. We've had some really good questions that have been sent in to us. Uh, however, we always prioritize your phone calls and would love to have them. Uh, one thing I will mention is that if you weren't able to watch Shailene Ayala's um, Sweet Summer Devotion last night, uh, please, ladies, go to calvarysa.com and watch it. What a blessing. Um, I told you I, didn't, I had no idea what she was going to say, but what a blessing. Um, it was to the ladies. Paula came home with a big smile on her face last night. One other programming note tomorrow, of course, being July 4th, we will not be live. We'll have a repeat broadcast uh, that will air at 4 o'clock. And then the following day, since I won't be able to tell you tomorrow, the following day will be the date day edition. Paula will be back for her first time. Maybe she'll do better uh, her first time than I did on my first time yesterday. 340-9585. Let's get right to some of these really, really good questions. Uh, Here's one from our mobile app. This one's from Rich. He says, what evidence is there that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Rich, there's not evidence that that he is or he isn't. There's not a lot of evidence that would suggest that uh, he wrote it versus Apollos or Barnabas or any of the other um, supposed authors of the the book. Uh, I can say that the early church fathers uh, attributed the, the letter of the Hebrews to the Apostle Paul. Uh, you'll look at your King James Bible, it says the epistle of St. Paul to the Hebrews. Um, so that's sort of the tradition where it's come from. Now, um, obviously you've heard my position on this many times. I believe uh, very strongly with all of my heart that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Um, and I didn't always believe that. Um, the, the, the way I came to that conclusion, Rich, was just by reading it. Over and over and over. I've probably read the book of Hebrews 50, 75 times. And um, the more you read Paul's epistles and the more you read Hebrews, the more the language is precisely communicating the same content. Now, Paul uses a, a more classical Hebrew um, 
in in um, uh, his letter to the Hebrews. Um, that's not a problem for him. He was a, a brilliant man. And, and people will say, well, it's different than his style in writing to the other churches. Well, he was writing to a different audience, and he was writing to a Jewish audience. Um, so that doesn't pose a problem for me. Um, the point I'm trying to make is, well, it doesn't really matter who the author of Hebrews is. Rather than reading speculation or listening to me speculate, I think, Rich, the thing that we'll do if we will read it and read it and read it again, I cannot emphasize enough how valuable repetition is to getting some of these answers, at least settling these issues in our own hearts. Um, the Bible has been given to us uh, as a gift from the Lord. We should read it and reread it and reread it. Somebody once asked me, well, haven't you finished it already? Well, yeah, but you never finished this book. And just reading it so many times, um, the ideas are Pauline, the suggestions are Pauline, um, the heart is Pauline, and I am, again, personally convinced that he is the author. Now, it doesn't mean I'm right. Uh, it just means that my heart has settled the issue once and for all. So, Rich, I hope that answers your question. Let's go to uh, line one, Jim from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, thanks for taking our call. Appreciate it. Uh, My question pleasure. about um, reading Bible stories to a young believer. I was doing this the other day, a little guy who's in the fourth grade this year. I read the story of Daniel and the lion's den, and he was sitting right next to me, and I was reading from a, I guess, a Christian book uh, that was faithful to the, the story in the Bible, had good pictures, and it was appealing. And it included the detail that after King, I guess it was Darius, uh, mm-hmm. lifted Daniel out of the the um, lion's den, they threw the, the evil men in a lion's den as well, along with their families. And the, the little boy asked, why did God allow Darius to throw the families in there as well? And I wonder, you know, the Spirit's going to guide us on each of those, but it, it was just a question that he that kind of unnerved him. I wonder what what would you say to the case like that? And, and are you, I guess, of the opinion that maybe we should maybe – consider what details we share when we share those details, those, those stories uh, that are true of the Word? Yeah, that's that, that's a pretty deep question, Jim. Thank you for, for asking. Personally, uh, I'm not a big fan of children's Bible stories. Um, okay. I, the, the Word of God is living and active, and that means that it meets us where we are, and it meets a 4-year-old or a 10-year-old or a, a, somebody my age where we are. And I think the Bible is the only thing that we need to read, and we need to read the stories to the kids so that they get comfortable with and familiar with the Bible stories. So uh, I wouldn't edit anything out of the Bible. There, there are, are thoughtful and, and, and kind answers to the questions that will be generated, but I also think that those questions are important important. So what I would have said to to this boy is pretty straightforward. I would have said, well, just as Darius threw Daniel in the lion's den, Darius had the position of authority and he had the freedom to throw other people in. Now, these weren't God's people. God protected his man, Daniel, but these weren't his people. These were people that were that, that had rejected God. These are people that wanted nothing to do with God. In fact, they're enemies of God. The Babylonians um, were, 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 were God-haters and were inflicting all kinds of cruel punishment upon the people of Israel for the entire time of the captivity. Daniel's life was really hard. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 6 and we see the story in the lion's den, something that we lose sight of is that the chronology in the book has been disrupted. Daniel's an old man when he's thrown into the lion's den. So this was a cruel and unkind thing. And God was simply um, providing the the, the judgment that, that they deserved. Their intent was to murder Daniel. Uh, obviously, the Babylonian culture was really, really, really cruel uh, for many, many years, and um, and they brought judgment upon themselves. So um, that's the way it was done in the ancient world. It's something else I think that we have to explain to our, 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 especially the kids, but but this is a good word I think for everybody. We have to understand what was going on in the culture at the time these stories are written. 
That way we don't have problems with the questions about slavery when you're reading the book of Philemon or, 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 or Paul advising slaves uh, to be obedient to their masters. Um, those kinds of things shake us up. But what we have to do is we have to, to, to study enough to know what the world was like at the time the story was being communicated so they understand that slavery was a part of uh, a part of the world the roman world slaves outnumbered free men uh, 4 to 1 and roman citizenship was very very expensive and those who had roman citizenship uh, they they understood um, that they, they had the right to, to treat people any way they wanted and that's what a world that rejects christ does so in Daniel's case, it was a cruel world. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the cruelest men who's ever walked the face of the earth, and yet he, he's going to be in heaven. And those are, are, are explanations that, that sort of make sense. God doesn't stop terrible things from happening as a general rule. He didn't do it then. He doesn't do it now. But God allows judgment. The people who were thrown into the lion's den by Darius deserve to be judged for sure. Uh, at the same time, uh, that doesn't make it right. That just is a, a historical description of just how savage the ancient world was. So, Jim, does that help? Yeah. Great answer. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much. And thank you even more for reading these Bible stories to your kids. But remember the Bible. Uh, one thing that I can suggest, you could, you could buy the New Living Translation. If you can't find a 1984 version of the NIV, buy a New Living Translation. It's written at a level that the kids can understand. Uh, the paraphrase, I don't typically um, endorse paraphrases, but the Living Bible is also a really good translation for uh, kids and and their uh, understanding level. Jim, thanks. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585. I love that he's reading those stories. Here is our next email uh, from Raquel. Uh, Do you think that the authors of Scripture had some level of understanding that they were writing Scripture? Um, Raquel, yeah, I do. Uh, Peter, for example... Um, he understood that Paul's letters, and we know this in Peter's epistles, that Paul's letters were on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Peter makes that very, very clear. So Peter understood that Paul was writing scripture. Now, did Paul understand that? This is something that I like to think about because there's no way for sure that we can know. Um, I don't think personally, now this is just an opinion, there's no way to, to prove this, Raquel, but I don't think personally that they sat down and thought, well, I'm going to write a letter that's going to turn out to be Holy Scripture. You know, we know that Paul, for example, wrote three letters to the Corinthians. Um, the first letter is the one that we don't have a record of, and the reason we don't have a record of it is because it was written by Paul and not by God. Um, but we know the other two were written by the hand of God through the Apostle Paul. So I personally don't think that the authors of the epistles, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I don't think that they had an awareness necessarily that they were writing Scripture, but I do believe, in Peter's case we know for sure, but I do believe that the others understood that these were very special letters. I, I think the, the, the witness of the Spirit would have been sufficient so that they would have known that they were reading that which was equitable with Holy Scripture. Uh, I just don't think that they knew they were writing it. I just don't think that's that's the case. That was just God working behind the scenes, getting things done. So uh, I think those reading it had some level of understanding, uh, but those writing, I'm not sure, really did. And beyond that, there's no way that we can be any more specific than that. Raquel, great question. Thank you. Here is a question from our email inbox from Caleb. He says, and this is going to get me in trouble, Caleb. Who is Jude referring to in verse 6 when he speaks of the angels who did not keep their proper domain in other translations as first estate, but left their abode? He's talking about the fallen angels. In particular, Caleb, Jude is referring to the angels who were so incorrigible, so completely and utterly wicked and powerful. 
We know there's different levels of angels. These were angels that were so powerful that that not only did they leave their, their first estate, which was heaven, serving God, but when they did so, they did so with such disobedience, they became very, very powerful demons. And these would be demons who couldn't be controlled apart from God tying them up. And basically, that's what he did. And he kept them in a dungeon, waiting for the proper time, for their time to be released. That's going to be during the Great Tribulation. Now, the angels specifically that he's speaking of, um, we can go back to Genesis, where um, chapter 6, where, where we, we hear about the Nephilim, those sons of God. That's a phrase in the Hebrew that is only used speaking of angels, both fallen angels and good angels. But it never refers to human beings. And it says the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And the distinction there is very purposeful. Now, I always get in trouble when I when I talk about this because people say, no, you're telling old uh, tales and, and, and pagan mythology. Um, if you read the context, the distinction between the sons of God, the angels, and the daughters of men is such that they went into, these sons of God went into the daughters of men and they produce children by them. Now people say, well, angels can't have sex. Angels can't procreate. I would refer you to Genesis chapter 18 where the destroying angels went to visit Sodom and Gomorrah and they went in bodily form. Angels appear in bodily form sometimes and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah sure thought they could have sex with them. That's what they wanted to do. So these angels went into the daughters of men. They produced this race of people, the Nephilim, these men of renown, these giants who were were especially cruel people. And it was in that particular case that, that I believe Satan was trying to so pollute the human line that the Christ, the Messiah, could never have come. Now, people say, well, that's impossible. Well, think about it. Why else would that story tie into the flood? Why else would God's response be so radical as to destroy every living human being except for Noah and his family? Was God just angry? Did he have a bad day? Was he throwing a temper tantrum? No. This was a demonic scheme to keep Jesus from being able to come from human beings. And of course, God is always going to have his remnant. He had Noah and his family, and he was preserving the line through whom Jesus could come. So those are the angels that Jude is talking about, specifically those fallen demons. If you go to the book of Revelation, Caleb, and you look at the the Great Tribulation, when those angels are released, well, that's the worst of the judgments. So that's who they are, and I know people don't like that answer, but um, no better explanation. Thank you very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Janet. I know that Jesus did not sin, but did he have the ability to sin? Uh, Janet, the, the answer is no. That's the short answer. He did not have the ability to sin. Um, because in him is light, there is no darkness at all. Now, the theological issue is the peccability or the impeccability of Jesus. That's the discussion. And people have been arguing about this for 2,000 years. Well, well, if he could, didn't have the ability to sin, well, then how could he understand what I'm going through? Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, but tempted to a far greater degree. Now, imagine something for a moment, Janet. If sin disgusts us at times, how much more would it disgust the one who is completely holy? Jesus was born without a sin nature. The reason that we're tempted by sin and tempted to sin is because we have a sin nature. And when we're tempted, it's something that our flesh wants to do. Well, sin disgusted Jesus. That's why when Satan tempted him face-to-face in the wilderness after the baptism of John. 
Jesus just answered. It is written. There was no struggle. Jesus didn't think, well, you know, I'm really hungry. That sounds good. Uh, maybe I don't have to go to the cross. No, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Um, Jesus didn't have that struggle like you and I would, Janet. So he was tempted by sin. Here's the distinction. He was not tempted to sin. People ask, well, how is that even possible? The illustration I always use is I have been tempted by alcohol most of my adult life. In business, before I was saved, there were people who wouldn't do business with me unless I would drink with them. But the one time I put alcohol in my mouth, it was so foul, I just spit it right out. So I've never swallowed a drink of alcohol. And when you, you, you have that filthy taste in your mouth, you just think, wow, who wants to do that? I had somebody once say, well, you get used to it. That made no sense to me. I think my body was trying to tell me something. Don't get involved in this. It's horrible. So in all those times, here's my point, Janet, in all those times when I was tempted by alcohol, it never occurred to me, not even for a second, to give in. Okay, I'll take a drink. You just put too much. No, I never would have done that. And that's what all sin was like to Jesus. It was so foreign to his nature that he couldn't sin. Even more important, Janet, is if he could have sinned, then we all would be lost. Jesus was born, his father through whom the seed of sin was passed. His father was God. His father was God. So there was no sin seed to pass. So while he did not sin, we know for sure. It's also true that he could not have sinned. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is anonymous. What are some sound? How much time do I have on this question? About four minutes? Okay. What are some sound biblical truths and practical advice that you would give to a couple that has just been married? Anonymous, uh, Paul and I have traveled all over the country doing marriage conferences, uh, and and we, we've taken whole weekends to do this, so let me give you the, the sort of the short version. Um, the practical advice, the biblical truth is simple. Hold on to what we know is true. We have the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't change. God doesn't change. He doesn't leave us in a position where we have to know or we can't know what's going on. So uh, hold on to the biblical doctrines. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in his last letter, he said to watch your life and doctrine closely. So we have to make ourselves available to the Lord. Our lives need to be fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we need to hold on to that which is true, never ever being convinced by the culture that we live in that these things are not true. The practical advice is more important. Uh, I'm sure you understand already about these sound biblical truths. But the practical advice is we have to work hard at it. Husbands and wives need to start reading the Bible together and keep doing it for their entire lives. That doesn't eliminate the need to read individually. But remember, when two become one, your your house has to be built on a foundation. And that foundation is only going to be strong if it's foundation in the Word. So husbands and wives need to read together. They need to pray together. They need to walk together serving the Lord. So one of the things that, that we usually say at these marriage conferences that we do, Anonymous, is that if husbands and wives will agree together to agree with Jesus. Then there doesn't have to be any division in the house ever. It doesn't mean you won't have differing opinions. It won't mean that you won't have uh, different perspectives on things. But but see, when a husband and wife are in the Bible together, when they're really, truly reading the Word together, instead of, well, I want to do this, you want to do this, you open the Bible and say, what does Jesus want us to do? And he'll make those answers very, very clear. So read together after having decided that you're going to follow Jesus together. Read to find out how to follow him. Then pray for one another. Again, it's very important. Individually, you need to have your own relationship with the Lord. You need to have your own reading going on. 
sometimes when you're listening for the Lord, you're reading it. I always suggest the book of Ephesians as an example. Um, you can read that book. You can have your wife read it on her own. Let the Lord speak to your hearts. And then when you come home from work or when she comes home from work, you can sit down over dinner and talk about it. Well, what was the Lord speaking to your heart as you were in Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 6, whatever it is? And you can talk about those things and you can grow together. This is important. In the grace of God and in the knowledge of God, who He is, and in the knowledge of His will for your lives. And if you do that, I promise you it'll enrich your life immeasurably. One final thing I'm going to say, and nobody ever takes me at my word on this. A husband and wife never has to have another argument. Not ever. If you get angry, if you're going to raise your volume, you don't have to do that. The Spirit of God lives in you. The fruit of self-control is yours. But what it means is, if you agree to agree with Jesus, it doesn't matter what he wants or what she wants, because you've already decided together to do what Jesus wants. And that's pretty much an argument settlement right there. Good question, Anonymous. Thank you very much. We have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You're listening to the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. That was a very fast two minutes. I almost didn't make it back to the microphone. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is a question from Andy. He says, do practicing homosexuals who are saved go to heaven. Now, Andy, I've answered this question many times before, but I'm going to focus on the word practicing that you used in your question. Uh, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 are really clear that people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the answer is clearly no. Now, practicing doesn't mean somebody who sins, they're tempted, they slip, they hate it, they repent. And even if they continue to fall in that sin from time to time, that's not what practicing means. Practicing infers a lifestyle. So here, let me, let me be really clear. An unrepentant homosexual who, as a matter of lifestyle, is engaged in homosexual sex, he or she will not go to heaven. I guess the way I can say that more clearly is that people who live like this are not Christians. It doesn't matter what they say. Well, I believe in Jesus. We've heard that over and over. Well, I'm just as saved as anybody else. I was baptized. If you live in willful sin and there's no conviction, there's no compulsion to stop, to change, then it's very clear you're not a Christian. This isn't me judging anybody's heart. This isn't me being unkind or cruel. I'm just saying that when you say you belong to Jesus, you have to do what he tells you to do. Now, not perfectly, but you need to want to do it perfectly. And so the person who says, well, I'm gay and God made me this way and I know I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. They're fooling themselves. So the answer to the question, Andy, is no. Uh, there's no such thing as a practicing homosexual who is saved. Again, if somebody falls into sin, they give in to temptation occasionally, and then a spirit convicts them. That's not what I'm talking about. By the way, let me say this, because I get beat up with these kinds of questions from time to time. The very same thing is true of the heterosexual man or woman or the heterosexual couple that lives together and comes to church, and that happens in every church in this city. 
they justify their sin. Well, we love each other. We're monogamous, and we're going to get married eventually. We're married in God's eyes. All those excuses. Somebody who lives like that and isn't convicted by the Holy Spirit enough to change hasn't really met Jesus. I think sometimes we forget the Holy Spirit's first name is Holy. We think he understands our need to sin. He doesn't. He doesn't make allowances for it. He's always convicting us if we really belong to him. So the real danger here, Andy, is the man or the woman who says, well, God understands why I'm doing this, or we can't afford to get married, or, well, I'm sexual, and so God made me this way. The Holy Spirit knows that that person doesn't belong to God at all in the first place. One more time, we need to stop listening to what people say and instead watch what they do. It's what we do that identifies to whom we belong. And anybody, gay or straight, anybody who can willfully and continually sin hasn't met the real Jesus. They may know who he is. They may have been in church their whole life, but they haven't met them face to face. So I hope that helps. Here is our next question from from Jennifer. She asks, how can Christians claim that theirs is the only true religion? Well, Jennifer, I don't like the word religion. If you've been listening to the program, you know that already. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And the way that we can, with authority, declare that only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven, nice people who are Jews, nice people who are Muslims, nice people who are Buddhists, nice people who are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons... They're not going to get to heaven because their sins aren't forgiven. Only the real Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of our Bibles, can forgive sins. And when we believe by faith, then it's credited to us, as it was to Abraham, as righteousness, right standing with God. Not because we're better than other people, but because our sins are forgiven. Paul writes to the Philippians, quoting the Old Testament, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means every person ever born is going to have that moment where they stand before Jesus. Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me by my Father in heaven. Every single person is going to stand before God as friend or foe and give account of our lives. The Christian is going to give account of our lives, not based on what we did, but based on what Jesus did. Why? He who knew no sin became sin, that we would become the righteousness or the perfection of God. doesn't mean we live perfect. It means that we are perfected. It's what he's done. If we can't say that on that day, then we're going to have to give an account of our own life. Remember, Jennifer, all sin separates us from God. Any and all sin, big sin, little tiny sin, all sin separates us from God. I know, 25 years ago, I heard a pastor one time say, consider sin like the color blue. And when you get to heaven, there's a big sign that says, no blue allowed. And some people, of course, are really, really dark blue because their sin is really, really serious. Other people are really good people and their sin is just a tiny, tiny sin and so they're light blue. But you see, there can't be any blue in heaven. And everybody else, good people, bad people, religious people, since Jesus is the only way that sins can be forgiven, all those other people are guilty of having blue. Now, how can we make the claim? How can we say it's true? They killed Jesus. He didn't stay dead. That is the exclamation point on our claims of exclusivity. By the way, every religion claims exclusivity. It's just only we as Christians have proof. We don't have to wonder about life after this life is over. We are guaranteed because Jesus was dead and he's alive. And our sins are forgiven. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. 
Let's go. Oh, I'm so good to hear. Tanya from San Leandro, California. Tanya, good to hear from you again. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well. Rested and a little bit tan from vacation. I know, but you forgot to take me back home with you guys. <laughs> you, you left me in California. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Pastor Ron, you, I, I you, were, you were too far north for uh, us. I know. I know. Um, okay. I know. I, I, one day I'll be back. I know. But the Lord's got a lot of work here for sure. Um, okay. As you know, <laughs> I heard your sermon uh, yesterday as well. But Pastor Ron, I, I have a really um, difficult question. Uh, I know yesterday there was a question about homosexuality. There was one just a while ago. And my question to you is, how best can we support the people that are truly struggling with the same-sex attraction. And and I know I'm not about, I'm not talking about like the 12-step things because I have heard a few people say, you know, I'm always going to be gay. And I always think about that scripture where it says you're a new creation and the old is gone and the new is here. And so I, I don't know how to respond to that when I hear that because the reality is some of these folks may not get married and have a, a what we would consider, I mean, a heterosexual lifestyle. And and I find myself kind of in the in the in this in this area where it's you know I, I they know that Jesus loves them they know that I love them and they know that I don't approve of their lifestyle, um, but I feel like then they're just left alone to to kind of work it out. Which of course everything comes from the Lord, but I'm just trying to you know living in San Francisco it, it's it's very prevalent. I mean I've got many neighbors. Um, that are homosexual, and I'm trying, I've really been asking the Lord to show me how to best let them know that there's a God that loves them, and yes, maybe they've seen the worst part of the media, the people with the horrendous signs saying awful things about homosexual people. That's not the Jesus that you and I know. And so if you could just give me some, are there any other, I mean, of course I'm reading the scriptures. Is there anything written by somebody that could potentially help or, because I want to be able to let them know that nobody is too far from the grace of God and the salvation. And so that was my question and I'll, I'll uh, take your answer off the air. And I love you guys and I miss you and I'm praying for you guys. (laughs) Um, I love y'all so much. Thank you, Tanya. God bless you. By the way, Tanya, pray for for me. I'm going to Durango, Mexico uh, this weekend to teach at a church that we planted 10 years ago. Um, and I don't travel well, so I would appreciate your prayers. Oh, there's so much, Tanya. You know, um, believing in Christ is a matter of faith. Um, most of the time when somebody says, well, I'm always going to be gay, no real Christian can say that. It's one of my big issues with 12-step groups for alcoholism or drugs or gambling or anything else. The Bible says the old is gone, the new has come. And when people hit me with that response, my first um, question to them is, well, do you believe this? Do you believe the word? Now, it may be true that you're always attracted to the same sex, same gender, but that doesn't mean you're gay. The old is gone, the new has come. What it means is that you are going to commit to live a celibate life for Jesus Christ. Now, that's the stumbling block for most people. Well, I don't think it's fair that I have to... Well, well wait a minute. God loves you. And he loves you so much that he gave his only son. And I think at that point in your conversation with people, we go back to the gospel, we go back to the truth of the the cross of crucifixion, the the empty tomb of resurrection, and we share. Now remember, faith is not won by presenting a great argument. Faith is initiated by God. It's, It's all God's initiative. I would tell somebody, look, God has me here talking to you because he loves you. And I can prove to you he loves you because he gave his son, his only son, to die for your sins. Now, you have to choose how you're going to respond. And anybody who says, my sexuality is more important to me than what God did, is denying the Lord. Very simple. If you want to go to heaven, you have to go on his terms. And you have the power, once you believe, you have the power that raised Christ from the dead. And I think part of the problem that we have is that we're trying to to rationalize or argue in a nice way. I know you would do it in a nice way. 
uh, with unsaved people who uh, have already rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, God has given them over, like Romans 1 says, to the hardness of their hearts. And every person, the issue isn't how we can meet them. The issue is the gospel already has. And they have to believe. And apart from believing, they're going to die in their unbelief. And the argument that the world would make would try to turn that over around and say, well, well, I don't think it's fair that God would have me not have a sexual life or not me uh, loving somebody that, that, that I want to love. We need then to turn around and say, but the argument is Jesus chose to love you no matter what. It doesn't mean he accepts you the way you are, but he loves you the way you are. And he provides an answer. I think especially in a culture like you live in, uh, Tanya, you know, Paul and I mentioned on this radio program yesterday, uh, we saw uh, just unbelievable numbers of of same-gender couples with very public displays of affection. We saw men who were clearly dressing like women and acting like women and women who were clearly dressing and acting like men. And, um, you know, the answer is not to win an argument with them. The answer is to, to be there and to love them. But you only love them by the truth. The minute we accept a lifestyle that is going to condemn somebody to hell for eternity, we have ceased loving them. So here's what you do. You tell them, look, I'm always going to be here for you. I'll always have the answers. They're going to be the same answers. I'm always going to be praying for you. But you need to know that I love you so much that I have to tell you that if you choose to reject Jesus Christ, then like everybody, gay or straight, everybody who rejects Jesus, they're going to spend eternity in hell. Jesus loves you. Please consider the cross and the empty tomb. And if they're going to do that, then the Lord will speak to their hearts. If they refuse, there's nothing we can do. We have to kind of evade the trap of trying to win logical arguments with people. It's just straightforward. God makes the rules. This is what he says. To come to God, we have to come on his terms. Is it a lot to ask somebody to live a celibate life? Oh, it's an awful lot. But then we can say, thank God, the power that raised Christ from the dead will live in you. The minute you say yes to Jesus, that power will live in you. Titus chapter 2 says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and I would add women. It teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. I think sometimes we have the expectation, Tanya, that people who don't have that grace, who haven't accepted the grace who don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have an expectation that we're going to be able to convince them that what we're telling them is true. We can't. That's a work that's initiated by the Holy Spirit. Finally, and if I said this already, please forgive me, but I've been going on a long time and I've forgotten. I would tell people, and do tell people, the fact that I'm here talking to you is proof of God's love for you. And the fact that I'm not going to change my mind just because I I really care about you proves that God loves you because he's got me fighting for your soul. And if they reject our Jesus after that, it's simply because they don't want to stop sinning. There's no other reason. Tanya, great to hear from you. Thank you very, very much. We live in a difficult world. 340-9585, 340-9585, very live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, please discuss being healthy and its relative importance as opposed to focusing only on spiritual things. Uh, anonymous, this is another area where I've talked a lot about it on this program. You know, um, Paul says that bodily exercise profiteth little, but it does profit. Um, the contrast he's making is things of the spirit have great value. Now, anytime we go out of balance with something like that, then we hold on to one at the expense of the other. You know, uh, we got back in the gym today. Paul and I, she was actually there yesterday, but I got back in the gym today with her. 
And at our gym, there's a whole bunch of guys who spend all of their time building muscles and watching what they eat, but they care nothing about the things of God. Their bodies look like wonderful temples, but those temples are empty. Well, in the same way, there are people who hold on to the things of the Spirit. And they let their bodies go. They don't focus on health. And it really eliminates a lot of opportunities they have to be spiritual. Paul says to Philemon in the sixth verse of that one chapter precious letter, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Anybody not sharing their faith, Paul says, doesn't get it. And I'm not talking about being online typing in a computer where you're 100 pounds overweight. I'm also not talking about looking good. I'm talking about being healthy. And the one thing that has been more evident to me over this past year than anything else is that health can change in an instant. I've told you on this program before that uh, I would have been dead a year ago if I wasn't in as good a physical condition as I am. As a result of being in that kind of shape, I have more years now to serve Jesus. I tell our church here at Calvary Chapel all the time that you can't serve God if you're dead. I tell my pastors that you can't teach people about having self-control if you're 50 pounds, 100 pounds overweight. Now, I'm not talking about conditions that cause obesity. And there are those conditions. But I'm talking about doing everything that we can to remain healthy. can't serve God if you're dead. As a pastor, if I was 50 pounds or 100 pounds overweight, then I couldn't with any authority at all talk about self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. I couldn't talk about the temple of God where the Holy Spirit lives in me if I was debasing my temple by not being healthy. So I think it's very, very important. I'll tell you this. We've got a couple of young men in our church who... Um, definitely have callings in their lives. One of them for sure is a pastor. Uh, the other is doing something else here at the body. And uh, we talked to them about this. You know, you can't be overweight and, and, and serve the Lord with the fullness that he desires. Again, we're not trying to make anybody bodybuilders. We're not trying to make anybody skinny. We're not trying to win any beauty contests. But what we want to do is be healthy enough to share with authority that God is good and that God, with him, we can do everything. And it's really important that we're healthy. Is it more important that we're in the Word, that we're men and women with sound doctrine? Yes. But don't dismiss one just because you're doing the other. So Anonymous, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Victor. We've got about four minutes, so we won't have any calls. Maybe this will be the last question. Victor says, Pastor Ryan, who should be the leader in a church, the pastors or elders? Now, Victor, when you're looking in the, in the New Testament, uh, uh, the pastoral epistles, and Paul's talking about elders... He's talking about what we call pastors. It's, it's a word change, but, but the, the idea is the same. Um, the, the overseer, or another translation says bishop, um, um, but he's talking about the office of a pastor. Elders were those who had teaching responsibilities in the church. Now, what we've done in our church culture, and largely because of, of the requirements of the law to be a nonprofit and to be able to provide a, um, um, a tax-deductible um, opportunity to worship the Lord in your giving. Um, our, our nation says there are guidelines. You have to appoint leaders, board members. We've chosen, in most cases, to call those people elders. But that's not the same biblical elder as we see in the pastoral epistles. When he tells Timothy, Paul does, to appoint elders in the church. It doesn't mean we have multiple elders in church. The, the truth is there were multiple churches, and he was saying to appoint a pastor in each of those multiple churches. 
So the biblical model for the leader in the church is the pastor. God has always given a vision to a man, uh, not without accountability, and certainly not to to be a dictator or to be uh, in a position to take advantage of people in the church. But but like the husband in the home, we're to be the servant leaders in the church. And there's no other explanation in scriptures that would suggest that uh, there should be a board of directors or there should be elders um, as opposed to pastors um, or congregational rule. Um, the pastor is the one that God chooses to lead the church. That pastor is a man. He is always a man. And he's the leader in the church. And you say, well, that could, could cause people to, to run amok. Well, it could. But don't you think God is able to control his church, the pastor's? If we live in a fear of God, then the last thing we want to do is mess with his church, his pride. Now, obviously, the reaction is, well, but there are abuses and there are people who are are out for their own. They were in Paul's time, too. Some preach Christ out of envy and jealousy, supposing they could stir up trouble for me. But what do I care as long as the gospel is being preached? We also know that there are false teachers who are scamming the people. Well, the people don't have to be scammed. They've got the Bible. They've got the word. And the Holy Spirit that lives in them will lead them into truth if they give themselves the opportunity. The problem is we're not good stewards of the word. So the leader in the church, Victor, should be the pastor. That's always been God's model from the time of Moses. God called a man. And through that man spoke to the people. And the same thing is true. That doesn't make us prophets. It doesn't make us apostles. It just makes us accountable to God. Good question, Victor. Thanks very much. Well, we have come to the end of the program. Quick reminder, we will not have a live show tomorrow because of July 4th. Please have a safe and wonderful 4th. Paula will be back in the studio with me live on Thursday for the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Please tell somebody how much Jesus loves them. We'll see you on Thursday. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.